The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. You seem to know a little about everything. Medicine, exobiology, shield harmonics. I'm something of a Renaissance EMH. I could use a crewmate like you. The beast would have a difficult time manipulating a hologram's desires. An Ishmael to your Ahab? No, thank you. You're turning down the hunt of a lifetime. As appealing as that sounds, I'm a doctor, not a dragon slayer. My program requires that I do no harm. Shame. Well, good morning, London. It is actually Thursday, August 30th already. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be Welcome to the show where today, if I, c- I hope I haven't bitten off more than I can chew, but I'm hoping to get to all these subjects. Yes, it's true. Hitler was a socialist, and I'm going to follow up on that a little later in the show. Also going to talk about those rip-off artists, and uh, might not be exactly what you think I mean by it, but we'll get into that later. Uh, but first of all, I want to talk a little bit again, as we did last week, about health care being offered by government. By the way, you can call in 519-661-3600 or email us, just write chrw at gmail.com. Last week, if you were tuned into the show, uh, I guess my first subject I, I phrased as insane health care legislation, using the words, actually, of a private doctor out in Vancouver, B.C., who had opened a private clinic and was advocating some more private insurance and other means of paying for health care for Canadians. Also commented on outgoing CMA President Dr. Colin McMillan and talked about what private health care is and what it is not. Well, today is part two of that because since that show last week, if you've been watching the papers at all, there's been a lot of announcements in this regard. And we now have a new CMA president and... Uh, Basically, what kicked this off, uh, I'm not going to be talking too much about that. Today I've brought actually a clip testimony of a doctor who considers himself a refugee both from the uh, British system and from the Canadian system, but you'll hear from him shortly. But if you, do, or if you, uh, if you read the National Post and the London Free Press, first of all, in the Free Press last week, uh, August 23rd, private health care pushed by CMA head. Uh, Just a small clip, which is about all you get from the free press if it talks about privatization. Um, The incoming president of the Canadian Medical Association uh, says the country's public health care system is headed for a crisis. But a greater role for private health care could be the right prescription. Brian Day said in his inaugural speech to Canada's medical establishment that contracting out health services isn't new and has helped slash waitlist. So they're talking about contracting out, which uh, was in fact an example I gave uh, in the Winnipeg area where the Winnipeg government is contracting out to private surgeons and private clinics. Uh, Move ahead a little now to August 20th, the National Post. CMA president looks to change funding system. Privatization, impossible, it says, in an article written by Tom Blackwell on August 20th. And I quote from that. 
Uh, Dr. Day has steered largely clear of advocating a major new role for the kind of private medicine he himself practices, in the short term at least. Instead, the orthopedic surgeon says he plans to use the new post to lobby for changes in the public system, injecting market principles, quote-unquote, into the financing of taxpayer-funded hospitals and clinics as a strategy to improve efficiency and to reduce waste time. To privatize the Medicare system in Canada would be an impossible task, even if you wanted to, he said in an interview. But there is no reason to think the public system can benefit, for, or, 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 or there's not a reason to think the public system can benefit from exposure to some of the principles that operate in the marketplace. Now, he's talking about funding hospitals according to how many patients they treat rather than giving them a block of funding, saying the concept has a proven track record in Europe. Well, I think we kind of call that the assembly line process of getting uh, people through. Um, But he argues that his thrust is replacing the current funding system for public hospitals in Canada under which provincial governments hand over a block of annual funding. So they just hand a, a, a chunk of money to a hospital and don't tell them exactly what to do with it, with no direct incentive to treat patients better or more rapidly. He proposes instead a quote-end-quote activity-based system that essentially pays hospitals for each patient they treat, theoretically forcing institutions to cut costs, improve efficiency, and compete with one another. As proof of the idea's value, he points to Britain, where such a system was implemented a few years ago and where wait times have been cut substantially. Um... Critics, though, argue that those wait time improvements were a result of large spending increases in the UK's National Health Service and had nothing to do with that funding model itself. And meanwhile, reports the article, the injections of competition among public facilities has led to unintended and perverse outcomes, such as some hospitals unnecessarily admitting patients just to boost their bottom line, says Britain's National Health Service Consultants Association. And they say introducing competition into taxpayer-funded health systems can make limited health care funds have more impact. During a recent visit to the UK, he said he found that many private sector physicians are complaining about lost business as speedier service keeps more Britons in the public system. And that's pretty well what the National Post had to say on that. Now, just going back to the original comments of Dr. Day where he's talking about injecting market principles into a taxpayer-funded uh, institution. That's simply a contradiction in terms. And and when I hear people talking like that, it really just bothers me a bit because it gives the idea of the market and market principles and capitalism a bad name. You can't run... Market, market means voluntary. It means everything in the system is voluntary, whereas government is not voluntary. It, it's a system of coercion and using force and, and taxation. Uh, where the, That's where the incentive has to be, is that earning the money right at the root, which is what we talked about last week, and I'm not going to go into that so much this week. Instead, I have with me today a clip that we're going to uh, turn to very shortly here, and it is a clip actually recorded here at the University of Western Ontario back on July 25th in the year 2000, so it's seven years ago. So bear that in mind when you hear Dr. Tom Dorman, 
who came to speak to a group of people here at the University for the International Society of Individual Liberty. I was uh, at that event. I saw him speak. I think he was one of the best speakers there, and I wish I could play the whole thing for you. But here are some clips about what... This is from Dr. Dorman, and you'll hear why he is a refugee from Ontario, and he also explains, from a doctor's perspective... What insurance is not? Runs about six minutes. Hope you stay with us. I think this is something vitally important to hear. Take it away there. Well, thank you for inviting me. Um, I'm actually um, a refugee from several places, but I'll tell you about myself being a refugee from Ontario. I used to work in a place called Fort Francis. Any Ontarians here know where that is? It's in northwest Ontario, and normally you'd speak to people from Toronto or such like, and they say, Fort where? I was recruited there after I became an internist. I graduated. He's worked out from my accent in Britain. I'm an Edinburgh graduate. And um, I, my responsibilities were there to run an intensive care unit and service the local community for internal medicine issues, such as hypertension and diabetes and boring things like that. And uh, there arrived, uh, on the second year I was there, the Minister of Health of the province of Ontario. He came out to the peripheral territories of his uh, domain and uh, it was a great event for our community and being the internist of the group practice I was sat next to him at dinner and the conversation went approximately thusly. Um, we expect you to introduce more preventative measures for the population of Ontario. We'd like you to control hypertension. As you probably all know, if uh, hypertension is controlled, longevity is increased. It tends to affect people who are past retirement. The outcome, of course, is that the population is more healthy. But the other outcome is that there is much more expense because not only are you caring for the person during the time you're treating him with the preventative measures, but he will still have a balloon expense at the end of his life which will be deferred. And therefore, the total expenditure to the exchequer in the case of the Ontario government is substantially increased. So I commended the minister on their excellent care for the population, and I, as a Hippocratic physician, was thrilled to partake in this and service them. But please, sir, um, what has been the discussion in the ministry about the actuarial concepts of this increased expense, and how are you going to be funding it? And he got very angry with me. He said, our intention is to win the next election, and it's the Prime Minister's instructions to us to promote preventative measures because it's a good political measure, and you're not to be asking these questions. As a matter of fact, we don't have an actuary in the ministry, and the rest of the dinner was spent with him talking across me to the person across about issues like fishing. That was political lesson one for me, and you will understand why I'm a refugee from your province. Let's talk a little bit about health insurance. Uh, do you all have health insurance, anybody here? Let's put it in reverse. Raise your hands, those who do not have health insurance. And there are about a dozen hands. And what do you mean by that? Uh, do you mean that you smoke and you uh, take off your seat belts when you're traveling at a high speed and that you look for accidents and jump from cliffs? You're laughing at me. 
I propose to you that health insurance is good food, exercise, avoidance of accidents, avoidance of toxicants. That is health insurance. Let's use the English language in an ordinary way. And what is called health insurance? It's listed on the right on the slide. It's others pay, others manage, first dollar coverage, supported by tax. What it should be, an asset protection in case of catastrophe, that's what health insurance should be, using it in the casual term, but what actually is it? It's asset protection. If you're concerned about your house burning down, you share the risk through an insurance company with other house owners. And in the unlikely event of the fire, you're compensated. For that, you voluntarily pay premiums. Is a fire insurance on your home mandatory? Of course it isn't. The notion is ridiculous. Look how the words have been turned around. We use what is good food and moderate exercise. We use the words that should be used for asset protection in case of a heart attack or some other health catastrophe. So what I think insurance is, is listed on the left. I propose to you that the concept of insurance contains within it the concept of voluntary, the example of the health insurance, the fire insurance on your house. If it's not voluntary, it's not insurance. When the farmer eh, eh, hires the vet to service his cattle, does the cow have a choice? <laughs> the um, concern is maintaining the health of the herd for the benefit of the farmer. And at a certain point, the expense of the veterinarian care exceeds the value of the cow, and then the cow goes to the abattoir. In what way is it different when we speak about the provision of mandatory doctoring to the population? Logically, there is no difference. And I'm going to share with you that I think that factually there is no difference, and the example May Lu makes the point extremely well. So insurance has within it the concept of voluntary, and we need to maintain that intellectual, that essential point when we speak about the word insurance. So um, universal insurance, mandatory insurance, compulsory insurance is exactly what insurance is not. That was Dr. Tom Dorman speaking here at the University of Western Ontario about seven years ago in, in July. Uh, welcome back. This is Just Right. I'm Bob Metz, and this is CHRW Radio 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. You can call in 519-661-3600 or email us at justrightchrw at gmail.com. Now, just listening to Dr. Dorman, uh, I tell you, he had the audience just mesmerized. It was a huge audience. You might not think there were that many people there, but they were just glued to that screen and listening to every word. You know, he talked about his experience with the Ministry of Health here in Ontario where they told him, well, we don't have actuaries like an insurance company would if they were actually offering you insurance. And, of course, you don't need actuaries in a government plan because all they do is rob Peter to pay Paul. They just transfer money from some people to other people. They don't really put it in an account, like take your premium, put it into an account with your name on it, invest it, for your, on your behalf and make sure that you have a benefit there when you need it. There is 
no plan, really, under the government plan, okay? It's a contradiction in terms. It's dog-eat-dog socialism, and that's what, that's what it's all about, is dog-eat-dog socialism. We'll be talking more about that. But interestingly enough, uh, one of the things that Dr. Dorman went through at the, uh, at the conference there was he explained how once that socialized medicine is in place, that there's a certain pattern, and he gave basically eight steps of what follow. I'm not going to play them today, but we'll briefly uh, relate, just relate them myself, because we will play that in a future time, but there's just not time to get his whole uh, dissertation in there. But basically, he says, once you're on this path, number one, money dominates the decision. Whoever pays the piper calls a tune, as I said last week. And, and if they ha- don't have the money for what you need, well, you're not going to get what you need. You're going to be on your own. You'll find it will be delisted or taken off the coverage. Government insurance is in the long run no different than private insurance. And by the way, Dr. Dorman's not a great fan of either of them, but that's another issue. Then you get a society where everybody feels that they're entitled to health care, that it's part of their right, that it has been granted to them by government. In fact, you talk to Canadians, they all think that that's pretty much uh, what Canada is made of. That's what distinguishes us from the United States. And Dr. Dorman refers to this as number two, entitlement leads to greed. And then number three, people become chattels, just as he explained with uh, the example he used with a farmer and his cattle. Uh, Yeah, he'll keep paying for their health until it becomes economical to do so, and that's exactly what happens. And, of course, people aren't cattle, and you would think that uh, we would have the means to look after ourselves to some degree. Remember, we're talking about a 100% free medical system, not not talking about just uh, emergencies. Uh, It's funny now that I think of it. You know that when everybody talks about health care, you see that hysteria. Oh, we can't give up our free medical care. Everyone talks as if... Every visit to the doctor was open-heart surgery, as if every visit to the doctor was about cancer or some of the worst debilitating diseases or a long-term disability, when in fact the vast majority of what goes on in doctor's offices and and even in hospitals are more on the minor scale, non-life-threatening injuries, things that you would think some responsibility should be put on the patient, but that's not what buys votes for governments, and unfortunately, it's a, it's, a, it's a treadmill. Once we get on it, we're in trouble. Number four, costs rise and regulations ensue, and that's what happens. You have a, uh, an unlimited demand on a service. The cost goes up, but they can't raise the prices because the price is zero. Okay, everybody can walk in, and uh, so in order to control costs, government must regulate and they do that by limiting access and, uh, you know, cutting, again, delisting services, uh, making patients go elsewhere, longer waiting lists. Number five, according to Dr. Dorman, rationing aggravates the social stress. And he talks about, he talked briefly about patients who go through a lot of stress while they're on waiting lists and, and uh, waiting to get in to get the service that they need. And that, in fact, can even debilitate their health to a further degree, which, of course, leads to more regulations, number six. We're seeing a lot of that today, uh, wait time guarantees. They're going to regulate that now, uh, <laughs> regulate the regulated stuff, you know. And number seven, which we can expect, health care worsens. And number eight, liberty suffers. Now, these are possibly the two least understood parts of the whole health care system because, you know, if the average person goes to the hospital and they get a, get a treatment and they get out, they'll say, I was treated pretty well. I got 
good treatment. In fact, uh, I think just the other day on the front page of the London Free Press, didn't they run an article about how uh, so many patients were very satisfied with the healthcare system? Read that article again and see what the criteria were. And one of them is not waiting lists or time to get in, and and certainly not about routine and more you know ongoing surgeries, which are, which often fall prey to this kind of system more so than the serious stuff. Um, governments can't afford to let the heart attacks and that kind of issue uh, become the major issue. Once people perceive that they can't even get service for that, then that's the end of socialized medicine, and government will not allow that. Which leads me now to uh, another article that appeared again a couple days later after those last ones, reiterating again what Brian Day is saying, but revealing something here. And this is in, in an August 23rd article by Pamela Fairman in the National Post, and the headline reads, reads, Short Wait Lists Would Limit Private Care. And they attribute that to uh, Brian Day, the incoming president of the CMA. <coughs> Excuse me. Now here he says, uh, Brian Day, quote, Our health care system must be redesigned based on rationality, not on rationing, said Brian Day. Boy, do I agree with that statement. But now look at what the rest of what he says is. He says, the motivation behind our group was simple, talking about his private health care services. Our services were subjected, subjected to rationing. Meanwhile, patients waited and waited and waited. Personally, he says, this is Dr. Brian Day speaking, my operating room time dwindled from 22 hours to 5 hours a week, 10 hours less than the minimum recommended for competence by the Canadian Orthopedic Association. So creating our own place to work seemed the logical thing to do. Now, if you recall, last week I think they had a glut of anesthesiologists in B.C. at the time. Uh, the other doctor, whose name I believe was uh, Dr. Godsley, in uh, B.C. opened up the private clinics out there, and they had the same problem. Here we are all screaming for health care. The doctors are there, but they're not allowed into the basic health care system because it's busy right now trying to cut costs. Uh, but here is the kicker, Brian Day. To privatize the Medicare system in Canada would be an impossible task, even if you wanted to, he said. But there is no reason to. I think the public system can benefit from exposure to some of the principles that operate in the marketplace, end quote. Well, to say that we should be based on rationality and not rationing and then saying that there's no reason to privatize, um, that's irrational. Okay, and of course, you can see the self-interest here. Here's a guy, runs a private clinic, is getting government money funneled through through contracting out. Of course, he's going to be in favor of, quote, market principles as long as the market's coming his way. And that is the problem with so many spokespeople who talk about market principles and capitalism. They're, you know, if you look through the lines, you can see they're not talking about freedom and, and about free enterprise. They're talking about a controlled enterprise and a controlled system uh, where, of course, now they're positioning themselves to get more money through the, quote, private end quote system and uh, that's just a complete misrepresentation I think we have to really watch out for that and uh, I don't know where we're going to be headed with this maybe they're walking a, a very brief tightrope or a slight tightrope trying to play both sides of the game a bit because they don't want to panic people who've you know come to believe that private health care is something horrible and will destroy society as they know it 
But uh, that's where I'll leave you with on that subject. Now, coming up next, just one more clip from Dr. Dorman, and I'll leave you with that in terms of the healthcare situation. But he just concludes a few other uh, points about how the system works and a little bit about drugs. And on the other side of that, I don't want you to think that you're listening to a a, uh, a commercial or anything like that, because what you'll be hearing coming out of this break will be Ontario PC leader John Tory talking about arts funding, and it's uh, it's actually taken off of YouTube where he has his little uh, station there, and he talks about what he's going to do with arts funding, and that will be the subject that we will return to after this. And first, Dr. Dorman just concluding this subject on health care. But one of the greatest horrors is that most drugs are harmful. Most drugs are harmful, ladies and gentlemen. It is true that pharmaceutical agents on occasion are extremely beneficial when used carefully and selectively. But the natural tendency of the harried doctor in the OHIP plan, or for that matter any socialized system, is to get rid of the patient in a hurry because he's on a tight schedule and he doesn't have time to focus on his customer. He's got 10 minutes. In fact, the health maintenance organizations, which is exactly what they're not, another distortion of language, (laughs) stress the doctors into getting rid of the customer by writing a prescription. I used to work in Britain. I told you I'm a refugee from Ontario. I'm also a refugee from the National Health Insurance in the United Kingdom where I graduated. There the poor doctors have got about five or six minutes per patient just long enough to write a prescription and get the person out of the door. The GP where my in-laws, they've got two doors, an in and an out, and the prescription is on the desk in between the patients and even get a sedan. (laughs) This enhances the turnover conveniently, but the outcome, of course, is that the patients go to to the drugstore, as we call it in America, to the chemist, they call it in England, and gets himself some damn drug, which probably is not good for him in in the large majority of cases. Is the pharmaceutical business in favor of this? this? Of course they are, because it increases their turnover. And what do they do with some of the money? They plow it into, quote, research, which finds results which which are supportive of the production of new and more drugs. I can tell a series of horror stories on that. Our plan is based on the premise that a strong Ontario requires a strong arts and culture sector, and that means the government itself has to lead. Um, We have committed in this paper to provide three-year funding commitments for arts institutions and major attractions such as Stratford, and including others like Shaw, Sunfest in London, the Ottawa Jazz Festival, Carabana, the new Luminato Festival in Toronto. We're going to create an Ontario Youth and Culture Passport. And this is going to allow young people under the age of 20 to access cultural institutions across the province, including the Stratford Festival. Again, today's visitors to Stratford, who are young people, are going to be tomorrow's patrons, who in turn are going to encourage their kids to like Shakespeare and to attend Stratford and to uh, be an important part of a vibrant cultural life in the province of Ontario. Uh, We will create, uh, under my leadership, the Premier's Council on Arts, Culture, Creative Cities and Towns. And we're going to look to communities like this one, with expertise and enthusiasm for arts and culture, demonstrated track record to provide counsel and guidance on building this legacy for the future. We'll provide better support for our artists. You know, it's deplorable to me 
that the arts and culture sector is worth billions of dollars to the economy and yet there remains huge disparity between the income levels of artists and those who work in other sectors. And so there are things we can do to provide a greater degree of security and financial viability for the artists, including the most vulnerable among them, the child actors. And so our plan is based on the premise that there are things we can do to provide legal protection, but also things we can do through the tax system and in other ways to encourage people uh, to be able to remain as artists and to be able to fulfill their own dreams and to be able to showcase uh, their own talents. And I take great prides in the words of Somerset Mom, who said, and I quote, culture is not just an ornament, it is an expression of a nation's character, and at the same time it is a powerful instrument to mold character. Wow, wasn't that a powerful message? And don't, aren't you just lining up to buy your ticket at Canada's local arts councils? Oh, thank, welcome back. It's Just Right. I'm Bob Metz, and you're listening to CHRW Radio 94.9 FM, where, where we will still be with you from now till noon. And that was, of course, uh, John Tory, leader of the Tory party, which otherwise is known as the Progressive Conservative Party of Ontario. Just a coincidence, I think, the name. I don't think they planned that. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an example of what governments are willing to spend your tax dollars on. And with that, I introduce the subject of what I'd like to call rip-off artists. And, then, you know, t- tell me if you, dis- if you agree or disagree, because here's sort of the pitch. Um, John H. Goddard is the executive director of Theatre Ontario, and he's among the many people lobbying our politicians who are running in the election now to take money from you, the taxpayer, and to hand it over to his group, among many other groups. And uh, we recently received a letter ourselves, because of course I'm with a political party, the Freedom Party, and I'm sure, uh, and this was a letter addressed to our party leader, uh, um, Paul McKeever, and I'm sure it was no, no doubt addressed to the leaders of all the other Ontario political parties as well. But they suggest that they, re- they uh, represent the following groups, just to give you an idea of who's getting your money. And uh, this is just the list from their letter, for example. Artist-run centers and collectives Ontario. Arts Build Ontario. L'Association des Professionnels de Chansons et de la Musique. Bureau de Regroupement des Artistes Visuels de l'Ontario. Canadian Artist Representation. Canadian Music Centre. Choirs Ontario. Community Arts Ontario, Cultural Career Council of Ontario, Dance Ontario, Dance Umbrella of Ontario, Directors Guild of Canada, Ontario Association of Art Galleries, Fusion, the Ontario Clay and Glass Association, Ontario Council of Folk Festivals, Ontario Crafts Council, the Ontario Presenting Network, Reso Ontario, Theatre Action, Theatre Ontario, Visual Arts Ontario. Those are the groups listed in the letter that was received by uh, the leaders of the political parties here in Ontario with respect to this current election upcoming for October 10th. And here is what they actually uh, wrote in their letter. Dear Sirs, we are a coalition of provincial arts service organizations who collectively speak on behalf of thousands of Ontario professional and amateur artists and presenters and through them reflect the views of hundreds of thousands of Ontario citizens who are the consumers of our collective art. They call themselves Arts Select 07, that's one word, and they say Arts Select 07 
believe that art and culture are as integral to the social fabric of Ontario as our health care system and are equally deserving of proper funding and protection. You know, let me just repeat that one. They think that the arts are just as equally and important uh, to health care or to Ontario and our social fabric as is our health care system. Canadians long ago rejected the concept of a health system based on a user pay structure. <laughs> Similarly, Ontarians have accepted for over half a century the principle that our governments have an a priori responsibility to nourish, sustain, foster, and promote a vibrant and health, healthy artistic and cultural community within their society. So here they are, using the fact that we've already accepted uh, a non-user pay system in the healthcare system to justify that we should have a non-user pay system in arts. So if you don't use it, you pay. <laughs> if you do use it, you don't pay. That's how socialism works. Five questions they ask, and get these questions. Here's the five questions that they want the leaders to respond to. Number one, what is your party's policy on arts education in the school system? And if elected, will your government reinvest in substantial and real terms in this vital component of the total education experience? Number two, if elected, will your government support ongoing and increased funding to the Ontario Arts Council? Number three, what priority does your party place on the following socioeconomic undertakings outlined in the Status of Ontario Arts uh, Artists Act 2007, and what resources are your party prepared to commit to them? A, training and professional development opportunities. B, municipal cultural planning. C, artist health and safety. D, strengthening arts and culture organizations. Number four, if elected. Will your government reinvest in a new multi-year capital infrastructure program for small to mid-sized organizations? And number five, what will your party do to further support and enhance the work of the Ontario Trillium Foundation in the arts and culture section sector across the province? So there's your five questions. Now let's look at them and review what they're really about. Well, number one's about uh, money. Number two is about money. Number three is about money. Number four is about money. Number five is about money. All this other stuff is nonsense. They might as well just say, will you give us money? 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 And that is what they're saying. And, of course, you just heard what John Tory had to say on it. He does share exactly the, the very principles that you hear outlined here, and he's going to... Uh, support arts and culture for all the same reasons because of course he understands the importance of alt arts and of arts and culture and as i've said before uh, you know our arts and our culture are the way that philosophy and ideas get spread through a society so you can understand why government has an int interest in in having some kind of control over that now without going into the detailed responses of each question of course uh, Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever, who was a guest on this show just a couple of weeks ago, has already responded to the Arts Council on this. And uh, I'm just going to summarize some of his, over, his overview comments and his reply to Arts Select 07. And apparently they're going to publish this next to the responses of the uh, political party leaders, of the other political parties, party leaders, in uh, whatever publications that they put out. Um, 
But basically, here's a different response that you certainly will not hear from either McGinty or Tory with respect, respect to the arts. And, and you might, some of you might find this a little strong. But, uh, you know, here's what Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever had to say. He said that Freedom Party regards it as morally repugnant to force people to pay for the promotion of art by spending tax revenues on such organizations and efforts as those listed. We do not put any priority on using the government's taxation powers to do immoral things. We regard the role of government as a protection of every individual's life, liberty, and property. Were an art association or organization to resort to mugging, burglary, or bank robbing in order to fund its executive and its efforts, the proper role and duty of government would be to arrest, try, and imprison those engaged in the wrongdoing. Ouch. To further support and enhance the work of artists across the province, says, says McKeever, we would free artists and art consumers from the monetary and political power of the Ontario Trillium Foundation and leave Ontarians with more of their own earnings so that they, rather than the Ontario Trillium Foundation's board and employees and those to whom the Ontario Trillium Foundation gives tax revenues, can decide which artistic efforts are worthy of payment. When your questionnaire introduction states that art and culture are as integral to the social fabric of Ontario as our health care system and are, equally, are as equally deserving of proper funding and protection, we suspect that patients currently forced to wait in long lines for government health care rations would disagree. And he goes on to describe Ontario's health care funding principle as an envy-inspired moral obscenity. Now, you think they're going to like that and print that one in their book? <laughs> Freedom Party is of the view that art should be paid for only by those individuals who choose freely to do so. We regard it as morally wrong to force a person to pay for artistic works or efforts if and when they would not do, uh, do so otherwise voluntarily. We hold government to the same moral standard as that to which we would hold our neighbor. And we cannot agree it to be moral for one's neighbor to take one's money by force and give it to the Ontario Arts Council. The Ontario Arts Council, in our view, should be funded on a strictly voluntary basis. End of story. Now, of course, Ontario PC leader John Tory totally disagrees, but does fully support the premises of Art Select 07, so I'm sure that that'll translate into a lot of votes for him. Except that, of course, the Liberal McGinty government also supports arts through government funding. And so perhaps this is not really an election issue per se, especially since uh, both, I mean, both parties are almost the same on, on so many issues. This is just another one, and it gives you an example of how they think and where they think, uh, you know, there should be government control and where it should not be. Now, you know, it's actually amazing if you st think about it, how hard John Tory has been working trying to redefine Ontario's PCs as the splitting image of the Liberals and NDP. He's totally distancing himself, for example, from Mike Harris, and uh, I couldn't help but notice in an August 27 Toronto Star article by Chinta Puxley, John Tory is quoted thusly, quote, When did I use the word service reduction? Did I use those words this morning? Tory said testily when asked about Harris's cuts at a news conference highlighting the party's plan to find $1.5 billion in efficiencies within the government. So Tory continued to distance himself from Harris, refusing even to utter his name, saying he would work cooperatively with the public service unions to save the province money. Let me read that again. He would work cooperatively with the public service unions to save the province money. Now, does that make sense to anybody? That if you're going to work with the unions, you're going to save us money? Well, the only way to do it is to give them $2 for every $4 you take back from the public. Uh, 
or you know you save from giving to the public that might be one way to do it and Tory says the government would also put more services online including individual health records which would save money and improve service Tory says how do you feel about having your individual health record available online to improve service this is the problem with not having uh, the old family doctor structure where doctors kept your records and there was a way to get at them when needed. People are going into walk-in clinics and different locations all over the place and now their health care records are spread and scattered all around the province in various doctors offices and I guess that's one way they think that they can get a hold of it. So isn't it interesting how both art and medicine seem to be operating on the same principles and that people are uh, you know, making their decisions based on those same principles. And speaking of artists, let's face it, there's two ways to control artists. Uh, you can either completely prohibit their work or conscript them to do your work, or, of course, you can always pay them and fund them through the government, which is another way to influence the kind of art that they do. So that's it for me on the arts funding thing. Now, just uh, we'll leave you with a little smile on that issue as we come into a completely different kind of issue. And uh, yes, I'm going to make the argument on the other side of this that Hitler was a socialist. I know a lot of you think, no, he's a fascist. No, he was a socialist. And you'll hear the proof after this. People can spend their own money on the arts. I don't see why government money should be spent on people's pleasure. Well, nobody could call it pleasure. The point is, we have a great heritage to support. Pictures, hardly anyone wants to see. Music, hardly anyone wants to hear. Plays, hardly anyone wants to watch. You can't let them die just because nobody's interested. Why <laughs> not? Well, Prime Minister, it's a bit like the Church of England. People don't go to church, but they feel better because it's there. <laughs> and the arts are just the same. As long as they're going on, you can feel part of a civilised nation. There are no votes for me in the arts. You said yourself, nobody's interested. Well, nobody's interested in the Social Science Research Council or the Milk Marketing Board or the Dumping at Sea Representation Panel. But government still pays money to support them. Well, they do some good. They don't frighten me, Mr. They do anything at all. <laughs> well, let's abolish them. No, no, no. <laughs> they are symbols. You don't fund them for doing work. You fund them to show what you approve of. Most government expenditure is symbolic. The Arts Council is a symbol. You're getting off the point, Humphrey. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry, Bernard. Yeah, what was the point? <laughs> what was the point, Bernard? <laughs> oh, the point of what? Final solution. Those people are being taken to concentration camps. Most of them will die there. Women and children? What could they have done to deserve that? Nothing. Hitler used a campaign of hatred against a people called Jews as a means of explaining away all the problems of his country. It obviously wasn't true. It was just a diabolical way of uniting all the dissidents in Germany. By the time they found out what Hitler really stood for, it was too late. 
If this is what they do to people, maybe we ought to let Babiard do his worst here in Germany. No. Those men with the swastika armbands are the kind of people he'd be bringing to power throughout the world. Who is this Babiard? Gestapo? Galactican. Look, lady, you're making me very nervous with all this strange terminology. He's like, you got a problem with terminology. And you think you've got a problem with terminology. Certainly most people do have a problem with terminology when it comes to politics and understanding the words we use almost in everyday language. Welcome back. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you for about another 15 minutes yet, running until to the noon hour. And the reason I brought this even introduce this subject uh, about uh, Nazism and Hitler in Germany is basically because of, of an article that appeared in the National Post uh, just this past August 18th by David Frum. By the way, just as an aside, uh, you know, coming out of our last subject, we just talked about art and culture. Uh, Hitler was very big into art and architecture, and he understood how vitally important these things were to both the culture and the symbolism and the philosophy of uh, of the Nazi regime. And, of course, he used it to his advantage in every case he could. But that wasn't the particular focus of the article by David Frum. In fact, it was more based on a... On a it was actually based on a book review. And um, the name of the book I see here is uh, by author Ali Gotz, G-O-T-Z, and it's called Hitler's Beneficiaries which uh, Frum describes as a book written in a very dry and unsensational style. So I guess if you went out and picked it up, you might find it a little bit boring, especially given that the nature of the subject. It's not about what you might think. Uh, The heading of the article, by the way, reads, Evil and Avarice, Overwhelmed by Debt, the Nazis Turn to Robbery. And the book's main message is that, and we have to bear this in mind, that the Nazi regime was a popular one when it came in. There was very little resistance to Hitler at the time. And I'm quoting now here from the outtakes that uh, Fromm took from the book, and it says, uh, uh, quote, the, the secret of Nazi popularity was not, repeat, not the allegedly fanatical anti-Semitism of the German people. Rather, Hitler and the Nazis built a welfare state that delivered real benefits to German families. This welfare state was paid for by plundering first Germany's Jews and then the conquered nations of Europe. That's how Hitler decided to pay for his socialism. Hitler often gets credit for pulling Germany out of the Depression, says Frum. This claim is false. Germany in 1938, which is, of course, a year before the war, World War II, remained a poorer country than was the Germany of 1928, ten years earlier in the period in which Hitler arose to power. Hitler launched a military buildup and created major social programs that Germany could not afford. By 1939, the Nazis were spending something like 20.5 billion marks on the military and 16.3 billion marks on civilian programs, all supported by only... 17 billion marks in tax revenue. So talk about a shortage. We're talking over 200%. But protective of his popularity, and let's bear that in mind, Hitler was popular, he refused to tax ordinary Germans to pay for the bills. Uh, you know, here he is, it's a totalitarian country, and the guy won't tax, <laughs> tax his people because he knows that will not make him popular. So even tyrants have to have some level of popularity to stay in power. 
And what uh, interesting observation that Frum makes here is that uh, throughout the Second World War, so-called democratic Britain accepted much higher tax rates than Hitler would ever dare oppose, uh, you know, impose rather on a totalitarian Germany. So uh, there you have it. You know, in a democracy, you can get away with higher taxes than you could in a totalitarian regime such as the one uh, Germany was at the time. So instead, Hitler plunged Germany into debt equal to over 200% of national income by September 1939. So you can see what the pressures were on the nation, uh, particularly since they refused to solve their problems internally. Uh, overwhelmed by debt, the Nazis kept ruin at bay by confiscation and by robbery. In the fall of 1938, Hitler's finance ministry panicked. They had two billion marks of short-term debt that was coming due, and they had no means to pay it. So the debt crisis prodded Hitler to launch the, the Kristallnacht program, that's pogrom, in November 1938, where he demanded a billion mark atonement in payment from Germany's Jews. And, you know, it, it's always, uh, whoever has the money, that's who the government's going to go after, and that's generally always the target. So confiscated Jewish wealth averted a Nazi debt default. And, of course, the methods first used against the Jews would soon be deployed against all of Europe, although there were always deniers and people saying, no, it will never happen. And, of course, that's the whole story of Chamberlain, etc., etc. You've heard all about that. But still, people do not understand uh, the nature of fascism and socialism. And, and, you know, if you really want to upset socialists, tell them Hitler was a socialist. We've seen this on, 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 uh, on the Internet. Man, they just go nuts and they won't let it go. But let us refresh our memories, and I, and I now go just to a reference source. Uh, I have a, an old set of uh, encyclopedias on my shelf at home, which I always keep there because history is being rewritten as we sit here and as we speak. And it's nice to have certain reference points that were written at a certain time outside our context so we can look a little back more objectively than we might looking from today. And my encyclopedia is one of the sets I use. were written just before I was born, actually, in 1950-51. I wasn't even around then. But uh, here's what that encyclopedia had to say about the Nazis and the whole Nationalist Socialist German Workers' Party, which is what it stood for, because, and the word socialist is right in the, in, in the name. Founded in 1918, and was by 1932 the largest single party in Germany. It was considered the only people's movement of all groups and classes in German political history. In other words, they weren't the fringe movement, they were, they were the people's movement. This was a real popular movement all the way around. The movement was financed by businessmen, landowners, bankers, and industrialists. And this is one of the reasons you will hear that you know, Hitler was a capitalist. He believed in private property. He had businessmen supporting him. Well, of course, the, the encyclopedia doesn't say whether they, it was financed voluntarily or not, because who else is going to finance the government except businessmen, landowners, bank owners, and industrialists, and the citizens? However, it was popular among them. Of course, that was even true in North America. Henry Ford was a great supporter of the regime. Our, you know, Henry Ford in Detroit we're talking about here, not in, in someone over in... Uh, Europe, and there were many North American industrialists and leaders who also saw what Hitler was doing during the 30s as a tremendous organization of, of resources and stuff, because of course they're thinking like business people. Eh? They don't realize that outside the confines of their private property where they're earning their money, 
government is a completely different thing, and to organize government the way you would organize a business would be disastrous for the citizenry. But then again, they saw this as efficiency and, and you know, productivity, blah, 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 and of course there was nothing of the sort. But here's an interesting comment from the encyclopedia. The long-term effects of Nazism on the German people were the complete annihilation of whatever liberalism had survived previous regimes of authoritarian persecution and the intensification of militaristic, nationalistic, and autocratic attitudes in German politics. And this demoralization of the German people, even after 12 years of Nazism, was expressed in their condemnation of the doctrine because it had failed, rather than because it was mass murder, Inc. So basically, this is pragmatism. You know, if, oh, it didn't work. Never mind all the rights you destroyed, all the lives you destroyed, but that was what people said. It just didn't work, and therefore it failed. Let's uh, go try some other murderous system and see if that works any better. So you can see that morality was just thrown right out the window. Now, what people don't realize, of course, and... Uh, I'm, I'm getting away. Now, now I'm done with what I just had to say about the encyclopedia. But um, as even pointed out by Dr. Dorman in 1885, German, Germany introduced the first socialized medicine system under the Kaiser Otto von Bismarck. And uh, Germany was well known for its socialized Medicare system. Uh, and that's 1885, I said there, not 1985 or early in the century, but we're talking two centuries ago now. And, of course, in addition to socialized medicine, Germany instituted workers' compensation, a government-run and financed education system, old-age pensions, an environmental movement, which, by the way, was the same Volkish movement that is being seen in the Green Movement today. This actually has historical roots to this. They were in totally in favor of, of course, affirmative action, but you know what that meant in translation. And sad to say, in many respects, the Canada of today is very much the Germany of the mid-1930s, that we actually sent our troops to fight, minus the, the military buildup, of course. But, but uh, despite even Canada's dwindling military over the past few decades, we still operate and have been operating on a wartime budget because our taxes all combined take up about half of the whole GNP. Now, what drives this kind of thinking? What is the real philosophical drive behind this? Um, you know, Adolf Hitler and the Nazis were the ultimate altruists. Look at all those social programs that they brought in, and people thought these were good things. They, they didn't care where the money came from or how it was raised or anything. They just got the benefit, and that's what they wanted, and that's what we're doing today in our political system today. And, you know, it was, and it is for this reason alone uh, that Hitler regarded basically the Aryan as the so-called Superman, or as we might say, the ultimate white supremacist. Now, here's something most of you do not know because most of you don't read the source. And the laughable irony, I think, of all of this is that to Hitler, the so-called superiority of the Aryan was not about intelligence and not about physical strength or about value or virtue. It wasn't about any of those things. And people still today talk about it as if it was. It was actually about the altruistic ethics that were displayed by the Aryan. So here it is in his own words, quoted from his infamous Mein Kampf, Here's what Hitler actually admired in the Aryan, and this is from his book Mein Kampf, which of course was published before the war. Many people didn't read it, not knowing what to expect. But he, here's why he thought the Aryan was, quote, in quote, superior. This is his own words, quote, This self-sacrificing will to give one's personal labor 
and if necessary, one's own life for others is most strongly developed in the Aryan. The Aryan is not the greatest in his mental qualities as such. Now, did you hear that? It's Hitler saying that. The Aryan is not the greatest in his mental qualities as such, and yet you'll hear that over and over again, the exact opposite, that he believed the opposite. But in the extent of his willingness to put all his abilities in the service of the community, the basic attitude from which such fulfillment of duty arises we call, to distinguish it from egoism and selfishness, idealism. By this we understand only the individual's capacity to make sacrifices for the community and for his fellow men. End quote. So in other words, Hitler thought the Aryan was superior because he was basically the lemming of humanity. He'd be willing to sacrifice himself for anything the leader said and without giving it kind of a second thought. And that's certainly not a superior quality in, in the broadest sense, and it has nothing to do with color of skin, race, background, or creed. It does have to do with the culture, the environment, the intellectual environment that you are uh, raised in. Uh, says Dr. Leonard Peikoff in his essay, Altruism, Pragmatism, and Brutality. He says, and I quote, the Nazis accept the doctrine that the group is not only the proper beneficiary of man's actions, but is also the creator of morality. The Nazi holds that ethical ideas, like all others, are devoid of objectivity, and as a consequence, there are no moral absolutes. Morality is flexible, adaptable, and relative, and that's exactly what you're hearing today. You're hearing our teachers saying that in the schools. You're hearing the same uh, there's no moral absolutes when, in fact, that is simply not true because whenever you see us abandon them, we head into big trouble. Uh, so much for Nazi ethics. Go one layer deeper, and we discover that the epistemology of the Nazis, that is, the way that they think, not what they think, but the way they think is, of course, pragmatism. And for a pragmatism, the true standard of truth is expediency. Whatever works goes the pragmatic saying. Never mind about the other person's rights or freedoms or even the other person's life. The greater good justifies the means. The Nazi idealism declares there are no moral principles to protect the individual. We can sacrifice anyone we choose because we are acting in the name of the only fundamental moral principle, the welfare of the group. And, of course, the real question to ask is, who speaks for the group? Because that's the guy who's the real boss, because there is no such thing as group rights. Somebody has to be there. And that's a Borg philosophy, if ever there was one. You ever notice in Star Trek, the Borg, they have this collective mind, but they always have to choose a leader, some leader to talk to, <laughs> to people. But that's just the way it works. And, folks, that's about the time, all our time today. Just before I go, just in, for those of you who might be interested, I will be appearing, actually, right now at noon on CTS, which is number 16 on Rogers Cable with Christine Williams and another guest named Anthony Hutchison on a discussion program called On the Line. If you're interested in that, you'll hear us talking about single moms, kids, reality TV, and a $2.40 CRTC cable charge to be charged to us soon to provide a station, believe it or not, for the blind. But that's it for this week. If you want to hear more, tune into that and certainly join us again next week. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, and think right. Take care. See you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. And my grandmother, God bless her, she cared. She cared. She, she called my grandfather. 
She called my grandfather one day. He was driving on the freeway. She called him on the car phone. She said, be very careful driving because I just heard on the news there's a car driving right down the middle of your freeway going the wrong way. And my grandfather said, one car? I see hundreds of them.